Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I guess the big question is when are these autonomous vehicles going to arrive? You know, Tom, I have to interrupt you there because, you know, the real problem, and it's a problem created not by you, but by people you've met in your career. I think we could have a really good long conversation. About anything. I want to talk about you and drag <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of My Wildest Prediction with Tom Goodwin. Today, we are blessed with the presence of Alex Roy. Uh, he is a former executive at the self-driving company Argo AI. He's the founder of a transportation consultancy called Johnson & Roy. But most interestingly of all, he's the author of The Driver, which tells the fascinating story of him breaking the cannonball record by driving extremely fast across America. Um, Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having you on. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm thrilled to be on the show with you. Uh, let's sort of kick this off with your wildest prediction. <laughs> well, I have two, and they're intertwined. The first one is that autonomous vehicles are inevitable. Wow. Absolutely inevitable. But the second, well, their sister predictions, is that human driving will never die. So they're going to coexist at the same time? Absolutely going to coexist. I guess the big question is, when are these autonomous vehicles going to arrive? Like a lot of things, it depends on what you, how you define arrive uh, and where. Uh, so you, you can go places like Phoenix, Scottsdale area in Arizona, where I currently live, and you can get one right now. Uh, a driverless taxi will pick me up in my apartment and take me around. But if you want to do that in New York City, you're going to be waiting a long, long time. So that's it. Everything is gradual. I mean, Aviation has been around for since the what, late uh, 19th century, but you didn't get an airport in every small town for another 50 to 75 years. We're less yeah, patient now. We want it now. We, we, we've seen all the kind of the reports. We've seen the analysts thinking, I want to go to sort of Tuscany and be driven around in a small Fiat 500. When is that going to happen? Tuscany, maybe uh, a medium timeline within decades. You know, I uh, the way I learned of you, was from a commercial that made me very angry and, and highlights this exact point. There was for a long time a, a, a uh, an interstitial ad on CNN with very dramatic video footage of storms and like robots moving and, and people like running. And the narrator says, things are moving faster than ever before. How are we to keep up? And every time I hear that, I get angry. And, and then one day I read you on LinkedIn. I'm like, this guy gets it. Like, it's everyone thinks change is everything everywhere all at once. It never is. Never. What's holding it back? There's no such thing as an invention which is created and then immediately propagates within days or weeks globally. The only exception to that might be an app, a phone based app. But anything physical in the real world takes really, at the very least, years, um, but certainly decades to become ubiquitous. 
But normally there's this sense that sort of technology combines with other technology, you know, code starts writing code, data gets collected at a faster rate, and then you get some sort of tipping point or accelerated returns. Is, is that not the sort of dynamic of, of self-driving cars? Well, I mean, if you have to open your iris, the, that tipping point, which may seem instantaneous, is decades in the making, decades. And so, you know, how many uh, factors have to... Um, uh, cohere or and intersect for that tipping point to arrive. Decades of those factors, so nothing's immediate except the you know people who benefit from saying it is. Okay, have they been lying for a while, or have they just been wrong? Well, self-driving vehicles and autonomous vehicles are um, have been around for decades, not at scale or affordable. You know, there are certainly the line between lying and exaggerating in Silicon Valley is about this big. There were in 2016, I believe, 2015, 2016, uh, there was uh, Travis Kalanick, the founder of Uber, claimed that uh, they were going to order 100,000 Mercedes-Benz S-classes for delivery in 2020 and that, that we could expect a vast rollout. No one I know. No engineer, no one in business development anywhere believed that to be true. And so I wouldn't call that lying except as a forward-leaning statement, which was just not credible. I, I, I mean, Elon Musk has made many, many statements. I don't yeah. think he's lying. I think he believes what he's saying. But he's notorious for pushing his engineers to do things they didn't think they could do. But if one opens one's iris, it's never seemed plausible that 2020 or even 2025 – would be the tipping point years. And there's a pretty simple explanation. Even if the software worked perfectly like to drive a vehicle uh, or a driverless taxi um, today, right now, uh, the, the life expectancy of a, car, a brand new car that any, people buy today is somewhere in the order of uh, the really 11, 12 years. And so if, if 100% of vehicles sold today had autonomous you know, software on board and can make them autonomous today, we're, we'd be somewhere at the, between uh, five to 20 years before you would see ubiquity from now. And would we be buying these cars or would they well, just be sort of provided to us? Well, nobody provides anything for free. But fundamentally, people just don't buy new things immediately because they, they can't afford to. What they own is good enough. It's sufficient. And supply lines for, for years since the pandemic have been strained. So the hardware, the chips when we need to supply all these autonomous vehicles don't exist at the scale when we need for a tipping point to occur. So the tipping, it was always nonsense. And a just common sense knowledge of how manufacturing production works could tell you that all the software in the world, per working perfectly, would not necessarily accelerate the timeline. And that's if it worked today. And right now, there are zero vehicles for sale today to the average person that are capable of this. A Tesla might be an exception, but this is where things get murky. Because Tesla has released several generations of vehicles uh, with improving hardware. It is likely, just as, uh, as it would be for a doctor who improves their hardware over decades, that the capability of a Tesla to drive autonomously is also not the same for a four or five-year-old Tesla versus one today versus one in the future. Fundamentally, there is no tipping point because manufacturing, supply, and logistics runs the world. Mm -hmm. And no amount of marketing can, can change the realities on the ground. 
In your time sort of working with Argo AI, you obviously got access to very privileged information. <laughs> and um, with your depth of, of expertise and knowledge, I mean, is there something that people are not talking about enough in this area, like a sort of critical problem or, or a wonderful opportunity that's not sort of openly discussed? Yeah, I mean, well, the two, the, there are two. The first thing people just don't want to admit is that most people want to own a car. It's just the nature, it, it's the uh, socio-political geography, certainly of the United States. It's different in Europe, parts of Asia, because of the geography and layout of, of cities. But in the United States, it's a country that exists in its current form because of cars, uh, first rail and then cars. And so if 100% of vehicles right now were perfectly capable of driverless capability, uh, I'm quite certain that if you took a map of gun ownership, in the United States and voting patterns and overlaid that, that the redder the state, the more conservative and redder that state, the more likely that people will want to A, own the vehicles, not share them or, or bar them from a fleet, and B, they've got to have a steering wheel. It runs in the DNA of American culture. Now, this is not the true of all countries, but if there were one place that human driving would survive forever, cars with steering wheels that you own, it would be the United States versus a country like, say, China, where you have a monolithic uh, political system that may not want to allow people to own a vehicle that's disconnected and human-operated so they can have some element of control. And in between, you have other markets in Asia and Europe. Uh, you know, Having lived in Europe for a number of years, it, it's clear that there's a, how to say, a more optimal balance between freedom and social good in the way cities are laid out, in the way regulations are written. And so Europe's a, a more complex, complex story on that topic. It is a very fascinating product though, isn't it? Like it, it's not a sort of solution to a mobility problem. It's an expression of who we are. You know, passing your driving test is almost a kind of a rite of passage that <laughs> is your sort of entry to the adult world. And even in places like Europe, where you may still have a sort of a bus service and other public transport. But, um, you know, Tom, I have to interrupt you there because, you yeah. know, the real problem, and it's a problem created not by you, but by people you've met in your career, is that the language of technology, the language of self-driving is itself bastardized and cheapened. What is an autonomous vehicle? The word autonomy is supposed to mean freedom. Therefore, the the best the the truest autonomous vehicle ever made would be like a Jeep Wrangler, <laughs> because it can drive. You can drive it. You've got to drive it, but you can go anywhere in it at any time. Whereas a a Lotus or a Morgan or a Porsche, like I own a Morgan, is like the least autonomous vehicle. Even if it had software on board, that thing is not going to make it a lot of places, and it you're, it actually limits your ability to get around. An autonomous vehicle in, in Paris or London, that's perfect. It's, it's the tube. So what are we talking about here? We shouldn't call them autonomous at all because if it, unless it increases your choice as a, as a consumer to do things the way you want to do them, it actually limits you. And if you're the, um, the CEO of a, a vast sort of multinational car firm, to what extent is the discussion about AVs the most important one or, or should they be focusing more on sort of EVs and how vehicles are propelled? Well, on the AV side, and I predicted this like eight years ago, <laughs> the dominant form of automation in vehicles of the future will be a vehicle you own. It'll be some kind of driver assistance, but it's really going to become a product we haven't seen yet. Because what, what is the perfect car? It's one we own, has a steering wheel, we drive, but won't let us crash it. 
Mm-hmm. It's a Porsche 911 or equivalent that I can drive anywhere as fast as I want. With, but if I do something stupid, it will protect me and el- everyone else on the road. So it's it's something beyond driver assistance, but short of driverless, because people want a auto- the autonomy they want is agency over the things they use, the products that they buy, and so driver assistance will become driver augmentation, which is something no one talks about except a few people at Toyota. That's number one. And number two, on the EV side, I don't want to say the ship has sailed for Western car manufacturers because some of them get it. But other than Tesla and like BYD, uh, there isn't a lot of true imagination and visionary thinking at the top levels of a car company. And here's a perfect example. The uh, Tesla supercharger network has been around for more than 10 years and it is was actually this entire time the most important uh the foundational uh transformative component of tesla as a company without it tesla would not be selling cars and 10 years after it launched we finally get other car companies saying that they're going to develop their own network and this is there was so fundamental uh, a mistake, such a failure of imagination, that the notion five years ago that anyone but Tesla would sell EVs at scale without having access to such a network. Imagine if gas station pumps had a failure rate similar to third-party electric vehicle chargers. No one would buy cars, and I think maybe the the, the failure of imagination is a failure to imagine failure. Mm-hmm. Because is it, it, is it a kind of core competence thing? I mean, if you've spent a hundred years making cars, the idea that you should sort of be buying or renting real estate and developing a, a charging network—I I don't even know how they sort of have those conversations in a way. So interestingly, uh, they um, there was discussion inside Ford a hundred plus years ago about in the early days, you know, of, of internal combustion car industry to potentially buy real estate, open gas stations, and in nineteen, you know. There were a, a handful of uh, gas stations, actual businesses that sold gas at the time. But most gas was purchased at pharmacies and uh, hardware stores that you had to bring a jug or buy a jug. Uh, and there, you didn't have you know, lo- regional or national branded gas station networks. But there also was a you know, multi-decade ramp up of car production. So there was some tension there because there were selling more cars than there were gas stations to support them for long distance drives. But for short distance, it was fine because cities had unregulated curbside gas pumps. It was Coca-Cola, which ended up financing many regional networks. And the reason you see today so many antique signs with Coca-Cola and a gas pump is because Coca-Cola poured marketing dollars into regional and then eventually national gas station networks because it made sense not to make money on the gas, but it made a lot of sense to make money on selling Coca-Cola while getting gas. And so this is kind of the secret history. Yeah, most people don't know this. And so jumping forward uh, 100 years, um, there was too much, I think, um, I don't want to say technical debt, but historical debt. Like the people who had imagination thinking about how people would buy gas were long dead. Therefore, there was no institutional knowledge or even creativity around how one would support electric vehicles until Elon Musk came along and made two, had two insights. The first one is that to buy, to make EVs sexy, you have to sell a sexy EV. 
every EV prior to to Tesla's Roadster was, uh, you know, a um, looked like a I'm trying to think, a bubble, like a not just a thing, not nothing of beauty, nothing that would make was stir the passion. Um, and the second one is that no one, no matter what it looks like, will want one unless it is as close to the current UX for a traditional passenger vehicle as possible. So you have to have a thing like a gas station with the reliability of a gas station. And so without understanding those two things, no OEM, no car company anywhere in the world could possibly have ever broken EVs out into general awareness and, and uh, scale sales. Musk got that. And the car companies only learned the first half from him, make a sexy one. So you have a Porsche Taycan is out there. You have uh, a couple other ones, and but no networks that, that could support them. And do you think there is an equivalent of a Coca-Cola that can act as a catalyst for the rollout of the charging network beyond Tesla, or is that just a historical anomaly? Uh, well, at this, we have now uh, announcements from several large like, convenience chains that already have gas. They are now finally going to you know, invest and partner with third-party networks. I mean, they're really, um, I don't want to say they're too late, but I think fun fundamental damage has been done to some traditional internal combustion car companies um, because Tesla owns the narrative. Whether mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you think of the vehicles. They own the narrative and because the Tesla connector standard, it's called NACS, NACS, um, is now basically the, the standard, it's called the North American Connection Standard, uh, is basically the been adopted by every car company selling EVs in the United States. Tesla has their finger, not their finger, they have a um, grip on the wrist of the industry now uh, and, and will for many years until non-Tesla owned charging infrastructure becomes ubiquitous. And that's probably, I think, another 10 years. It's a dangerous time. It's interesting how different this feels in different parts of the world. You know, if you're in Guangzhou, yeah. like every car appears to be an EV. If you're in sort of Western Europe, um, there does appear to be a sort of a mass arrival of EVs beyond Tesla. Whereas in the US, it almost seems like T T Tesla and sort of EVs are sort of synonymous. Um, perhaps this is an unfair question, but when you look towards the next five years and looking at markets like the US and Europe and say China as three distinct entities, how do you see the sort of rollout of EVs going? Like, do you think it's going to be incumbent uh, traditional car makers who leapfrog uh, to win? Do you think it's going to be a company like Tesla? Do you think it's going to be Chinese uh, manufacturers? Or do you think it's going to be sort of um, EV first non-Tesla brands like Rivian or Lucid or, or, or Fisker or, or so on? A, a problem which occurs in, in certainly in automotive, but in almost every vertical is as companies grow and age successfully, they feel it's necessary that they grow into offering a product in every market segment. And this diversification, which they believe is an insurance policy <laughs> and makes them more competitive, I think over time it doesn't. And I mean, who, let, let's take Porsche as an example of actually being, I think, quite smart. They make as few vehicles as possible, but the best they can in each, um, in each market segment. It's absolutely the best. A Taycan is a unique vehicle. A Cayenne, you either want one or you don't. It's terrific even if you don't want one. It's terrific. And then there's a Macan, which is the smaller crossover. Can you imagine if they made like five crossovers? 
then you're then your BMW, your Mercedes. And you it's difficult to compete well in every segment. And then you have the baggage, the costs, uh, and the debt associated with competing in every segment. So the legacy car companies today, because they're so old, occupy a space, uh, I think a mind share uh, beyond merely filling a product market segment. For example, Ford really uh, as you know, three businesses or three products. Um, they have F one fifties that they sell to people who don't need one, but it's an, you got to have an F one fifty. It's what you buy. You're an American. Then there is the Ford Pro. Everything associated with running a business that requires trucks, you, you just get Fords. Is what you do. It's great business. The third one is Mustang. Doesn't matter how many Mustangs they sell. It's part of American culture. It's you just get a Mustang. It's what you get. So there are three that they basically have. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Three products. And they're very important. And the company could probably survive on any one of them. But fundamentally, if Ford just did trucks and in a few Mustangs, Ford will last forever. That's what they do. Not every car company has such clarity on what the what they offer. And the more you offer, the less likely it is you'll survive in your current form. So Mercedes and BMW make great cars, great engineering, great brands, great in every way. Too many models. And since electric uh, electric vehicles completely commoditize and totally devalue the concept of performance, if every vehicle is capable of zero to 60 in three seconds or two seconds and is quiet and is... Um, perfect weight distribution, what's left <laughs> for a brand that has performance in its DNA? The vehicles have to be extraordinarily beautiful. Beautiful, no, de no debate. And then they have to figure out something else, services or product experience that's not purely about straight line speed. And this is where if annoying wants to survive, they need to think creatively. There's very little creative thinking. So here's a prediction, an OEM to survive, has to quadruple down on brand, not model diversification, on brand, and make the product experience as unique as possible, which is tough. But an example of how I would do it, a company like Porsche, the whole company, every vehicle is expected to perform well. Mercedes and BMW, no, they're not. Many of them are just two, you know, commuter cars. So they need to think about how can I make the driving experience better, even if I'm not going fast. And it's a driver augmentation system. Why all the talk of subscription services and digital transformations, nonsense. What do people actually want? I would love to pay for my daughter who's five when she gets her first driver's license. I would love her to be able to have driver's education built into the car. I would subscribe to that for six years hmm. uh, from age 15 through the end of university or another five, as long as it takes for her to become a great driver. I would subscribe to that. And I would, I would pay extra to unlock performance on the car based on how well she does her driver education in the vehicle. 
this doesn't exist today. Like the thinking just does not, like that just doesn't compute. Because BMWs, you know, they tried to offer subscription seat heaters. This is fundamentally, I don't, it's not theft, but if people could buy a, a car with a seat heater and have it for 50 years versus getting a car where I have to pay every month, they feel like they're losing something. Yes. It kind of reminds me of an airline saying, uh, give us $20 or we'll punch you in the face. And so you have to give people something new, which is fundamental to the concept of entertainment, and, and give it to them at a reasonable price, which is fundamental to the concept of value. And if you don't do both those things, you're going nowhere. Now, if you have an amazing brand on top of it, you'll have them forever. Apple's figured this out. But even though Apple, you pay a premium for it, you feel like you're getting value. It feels like you have something magical. Tip, tip one is to kind of double down or triple down on the brand to make sure that Absolutely. people buying these vehicles sort of know what they're getting into the lifestyle that they represent. Tip two is to sort of simplify the product range to make sure that your products are differentiated. Tip three is to kind of build out new products and services that create a more holistic driving experience in a way that uses imagination beyond what traditional car companies have done. If, if every competitor is offering the same of the third thing, you're dead. <laughs> it, it's interesting. I mean, one of the most um, imaginative things I ever saw done by a car company was Tesla's dog mode, um, which was not extraordinary in terms of technology, but it was just a, a kind of mental muscle um, that I can't imagine another car manufacturer exercising, like a way of being sort of customer centric and doing something with what you've already got, which sort of satisfies the need. So it's always interesting to think what else might be in that kind of uh, way of thinking. You know, uh, people give Musk a lot of grief for character flaws and X, Y, and Z, but there is nothing moves as quickly as a leader with passion and authority rapidly iterating off of feedback. So think about people who say, oh, why did he buy Twitter? Well, on Twitter, <laughs> he has instant access to customer feedback and within 24 hours turning around software updates. Another car company could take two to five years to accomplish the same task. And that's exactly what they're doing. And you can see why Tesla commands Mindspace. We are probably about three hours away from the official launch um, and delivery of the first Cybertruck. What's your prediction about the future success of that rather crazy vehicle? <laughs> How do you define success for such a vehicle, Tom? <laughs> Um, as in become um, a common fixture on the roads, probably only of America, realistically. I think the Cybertruck is um, going to be a huge hit. I think it's uh, beautiful in the way Cubist art was when it first emerged, very controversial. Uh, it's, it's, a part, it's a permanent part of automotive history. And, you, and if you hate it, you're proving my point. <laughs> It's, the, it's it's how you know ambitious and wild and crazy and absurd and gorgeous it is to see someone take such a risk. A failure for them would be they build a, you know, a few hundred thousand of them and sell them and people make fun of them. That's a failure. A success is they've already succeeded. If they sold a hundred of them and ceased production, they won because it's a media war, uh, the war of perception. And Musk has won this over and over uh, for 10 years. So how do you fight that? Yeah, that's interesting. 
I'm always um, interested to know which is the best way to enter a market from. Like, is it best to be an amazing battery company like BYD and then figure out how to make cars? Is it best to be a car manufacturer that's got a dealership network that can distribute and service cars? Is it best to be someone who doesn't really know how to make a car but understands software um, and services like Elon Musk? You know, if you had to sort of bet the farm on one of those directions being the best way to thrive in the future of automotive, which one would you say is is ideal? Uh, I hate that question because it's the most important question. <laughs> um, the only example we have in automotive of how to do this is Tesla. We haven't, I mean, Lucid is... Uh, an incredible company. Well, they make incredible cars. Cars are beautiful. I, I want to lose it so badly. They need to come out with a, their third vehicle is the most important one. The second one, the Gravity SUV they just released is beautiful too. But they, if they want to scale, they have to come out with an affordable vehicle and they have one on the roadmap. So Lucid, could, Lucid has a shot. Um, Rivian has a shot because they're also beautiful vehicles, but they have to, unpack or they have to resolve some issues internally with software but no one has solved you can't solve it all at once so you really you have to start with financing a lot of great companies that don't have it you have to have an amazing product a lot of companies don't have that <laughs> um and then i guess where i'm really going as i talk this out is you have to have it all elon musk didn't have manufacturing solved he had everything else solved he understood brand he understood product he understood user experience better than any car company up front. Um, he didn't have manufacturing figured out. And as a result, the company was on the precipice more than once, but he survived it due to another thing that a few people have, which is extraordinary focus. So you can start with less than all the things on the list you need to succeed. But when you get to the one thing you don't have, you have to have a leader with extraordinary focus, no committee thinking, no hesitation, uh, no, you cannot be risk averse. You just cannot be. So I'll take Fisker. I have to bring up as part of the answer because here's a company with generally beautiful products. Not everything Henrik Fisker designs is beautiful, but most of them are at the very least interesting. Um, but he's never been in a, an organization structured like Tesla. And I don't think he wants to be because he's, he's a designer at heart. So the first Fisker company, which released the Karma in like 2011 or 2012, beautiful. When that the Tesla came out and the Fisker Karma came out, I wanted a Fisker. I thought Tesla looked ridiculous. The big screen, I hated it. I love how the Fisker looked. But Fisker was did not have the structure with a single leader with focus who would move heaven and earth and risk everything for that company to move forward. And so instead, Mr. Fisker is designing interesting cars with weird, he's trying over and over, we'll try this, we'll do a crossover, we'll raise money, I'll license the brand, I'll have someone else manufacture. No. I mean, it's worth saying traditional car makers have made some pretty decent EVs and perhaps um, across the world, there will be some markets where EVs uh, take longer to dominate the market with cost being a sort of primary factor. Do you think many traditional companies uh, who manufacture cars realize what's up for grabs and how strongly they are positioned, but also the degree to which they need to change almost everything about the way they work? I don't think, I think they understand the threat, but they are 
unable to make the choices they need to make, unable to make them, maybe there's uh, labor issues or other issues, or they're unwilling. If a leader uh, at a company is uh, expects to be in the seat for, say, five years or three years or they're getting near retirement, um, it's easier just to coast and make a few superficial moves and let the next person figure it out. A young leader, a younger leader cannot think like that because the rest of their life will be defined by a failure of imagination. Whereas an older leader generally is protected by a deliberate choice to avoid imagination. And so the way people are promoted up into companies, as opposed to bringing someone from outside, is probably what's going to kill a lot of these big companies. And that's why startups, if you could find that extraordinary startup leader with a maturity for a long-term vision and wanting to execute themselves, very hard to beat. Very, very hard to beat. GM is an exception here because Mary Barra, CEO of GM, really has, under her watch, they had an incredible driver assistance product called Super Cruise, the first and best of its kind that has been out there for a long time, which was horribly marketed and placed on too few models. So lost opportunity. But she did bet big billions on Cruise self-driving division to compete with Waymo and my former employer, Argo. So she's taking big bets, not, not afraid. Um, but... She has an organizational flaw, GM does in general, which is even if she's making the right choices, she's also investing enormously in, in batteries, the Ultium battery technology. But underneath her is a vast organization of people without the aggression and laser focus required to execute. Underneath Elon Musk is a vast or is a smaller organization of people that he fires the instant he didn't see the focus and aggression that he wants. And the results speak for themselves. So a second part of your question was, what happens in the rest of the world? So many leaders forget that the, the market is not like a, uh, a thing into which you just dump products, but a market is that every market is different. So European cities that are higher density and walkable with a fantastic transit systems will not necessarily benefit that much from ubiquitous driverless robo-taxis. Like, doesn't matter if they're electric, doesn't matter if they work perfectly. The actual geography of the cities is not optimal for them. I mean, it'd be great to have a couple, but if you wanna improve getting around a European city, what you really want is, uh, instead of having one electric autonomous robo-taxi, you're better off uh, building, you know, 50 um, electric bikes. A hundred, like, I don't even know how many batteries you can, uh, a single electric vehicle could provide for electric bikes. But e-bikes of all kinds, micromobility, um, are more efficient in many ways and better from an actual, um, the, the spatial geography of the vehicles. Because on a given street, instead of fitting six cars, you could fit dozens of people on bicycles. So a car company that claims they want to transform cities and improve life, you know, urban quality of life and safety would have to, if they want to be part of the solution in a real way, own an e-bike company and sell them in the same dealer as they sell a car. I mean, why are why are the products we use to get around split between different stores, different brands, and often different subcultures? Everyone's got to get somewhere, but 
Bicycle people often hate car people. The car, the companies that make the two things often don't like each other. And if I want to create a spreadsheet to figure out what it costs me in a year to get all the places I go, uh, it's not that easy. Like to figure out my cost per mile and long-term ownership costs, this, that, and the other. So car companies aren't thinking holistically. There are exceptions, you know, Porsche sells a bicycle, but it's so expensive and it's deliberately rare that it's not, you could never expect every Porsche vehicle buyer to buy that beautiful, expensive Porsche bicycle. And yet most people who have a nice Porsche or any Porsche at some point, they're probably going to own a bicycle. And yet these two product categories are not even thought about in the same universe. So leaders that are running companies that are multinational have to think about the local markets. When they say all politics is local, all mobility is local. So your product design and your marketing has to reflect that. If you want to capture a customer for life, instead of trying to capture them you know, with different six types of cars or four types of SUVs, why not offer two SUVs and a beautiful, inexpensive bicycle made the way only Mercedes can make them? It's very interesting. It's a completely different way to think about the industry. So I, I guess to kind of um, to end on and to sort of round out your, your prediction about the future, you said, I, I believe, um, that you think that autonomous vehicles are inevitable, but we won't always be driving them. How do, what does that future look like? If you forget the nonsense and BS and all the, the trash foisted on us by long gone car company leaders and consultants and all the people I know you dislike as well, strip it away. What will be the perfect car? To, perfect car of the future. It would, there would be, I don't know, two, two types. There would be you know a crossover or SUV of some kind to move for families. And there'd be sports cars for people who don't have families yet or the kids have grown up. So two physical form factors. And then they would all have steering wheels for the people who want to feel that they're in control. But you could opt out of it. And then the software on board would do this. It would, when I'm driving, not let me crash. But it would preserve all the fun of driving. That software doesn't exist yet. No one's built that. But if I don't want to drive... I could just get in the back and sleep and it will take me from A to B safely. So I own it. It won't let me crash. And it can also drive for me. So it touches all of the wants and needs of any car buyer. And it would be electric. But if it was, say, an electric Porsche 911, it would, I would subscribe to a database of the sound and feeling of every 911 ever made. And I could pay to pick the year and then the dynamics of the vehicle, because it's electric and everything's software defined, the dynamics of the vehicle, the physics of it would change based on which year and model I'd subscribe to. This would be sufficient, these technologies I just described, for 99% of the buyers, car buyers who have lived or will ever live. And for a subset of 1%, who want an analog vehicle, internal combustion, old school, they will pay an insurance rate that's astronomical, but, it, um, but they will have an option to drive those cars. And uh, there will be some new regime to uh, assess their risk. That's the future of cars. There will be driverless buses and things with no steering wheel, of course. 
And as you get to Europe and Asia, you'll see more of that. But fundamentally, all humans are the same. They want to feel free. And you know, the ultimate you know, AI, you know, human machine interface, or the ultimate human machine interface has existed for 100 years. It's the car. Because when you say, even a car from 100 years ago, when you say, uh, when you're in a crash, you never say, my car had a crash. Say, I had a crash. Because the first person to drive an internal combustion vehicle 100 plus years ago, when they got in that car, the car became an extension of their body. And we've been playing games with what words like autonomy mean ever since. I love it. Alex, I love the sort of depth of expertise you have, but also the altitude and the, the width that you can see things, things from. And I love your sort of focus on imagination and the future. But more than anything else, like a real sort of sense of empathy towards what it's actually like to be someone driving these things and owning them. So thank you very much for being on this week's show. Thank you. And I could not be more optimistic about the future. I love it. That's it for this episode. I'm your host, Tom Goodwin. This series is produced by Marta Rodriguez-Martinez. Alice Carnvali also assisted in the production of this episode. The theme music is by Alexandra Jazz. Sound editing is by Jean-Christophe Marceau. And sound mixing is by Matthew Duchesne. Our editor-in-chief is Ali Ihsan Aydin. If you aren't already, you can listen to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a positive review and, of course, sharing it. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.